I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. And I'd encourage you to put that Bible in your lap, uh, whether it's a paper Bible or whether it's a digital Bible. If you're watching us online today, I'd encourage you to do the exact same thing. Get that Bible open to Matthew 17 and keep it open so that you can follow along and understand what God is saying through His Word. The term retrospective is an intentional looking back at something for the purpose of contemplation. Now, we don't have a church sign out front, but if we did, one of those marquee church signs, if we had one, I would have put on that sign for this morning a resurrection retrospective. And the reason for that is is because Resurrection Sunday is just a couple weeks ago. But for some, it may be a distant, fading, faint image in our rearview mirror. You know, didn't we just cover this a couple weeks ago, Tim? I mean, why do we have to revisit this stuff again? Well, I want to change that thinking this morning, and we're going to look back at the resurrection. Now, it just so happens that the the preaching schedule gets determined months in advance, and so this passage, Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, were long ago determined that we would preach it today, a couple weeks after we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. But there's a better reason. I want you to think about this. If the historical events of the 40 days that immediately followed the resurrection of Jesus, if those events were occurring today, Jesus would still be present with us. Jesus would still be walking amongst us. Because we're only a couple weeks removed. We've got maybe three more to go, right? What was happening during that time? Well, about a week ago, Jesus would have given Thomas the opportunity to actually place his hand into his side and to feel the wounds in in his hands, in Jesus' hands. Who knows, today actually, or maybe early this week, Peter's going to throw up his hands and say, I'm going to go fishing. I don't know what else to do. We're up here in Galilee. He told us to come. I'm going fishing. And well, out in in the boat, he looks back and sees Jesus on the shore. And when he arrives on shore, Jesus has cooked a breakfast. (laughs) And then he takes Peter for a walk down that beach, a very intimate walk. And he invites Peter back into the responsibility that God has entrusted to him. So there's a lot happening. Too often, though, we turn the corner on Easter and we begin planning summer vacations, right? Do you have yours lined up yet? Got your reservations yet? When it comes to church work, we start thinking about missions trips. We have a high school missions trip this summer. It's going to be great. Oh, oh my word, we haven't ordered the curriculum for Vacation Bible School yet. Are we going to do a soccer camp this year? And immediately we begin thinking about the next project. You know, it's sort of a check the box on Easter. Let's take a deep breath and let's move on to the next project. I want to pump the brakes on that this morning. It, I want us to encourage us to sit, just sit a little bit with the reality of Jesus' necessary sacrifice and the reality of his life-giving resurrection, things that we celebrated just two weeks ago, but maybe have quickly 
faded away. Now, if you were like one of, in our midst a week ago, very observant worshiper, he came up to me afterwards and said, hey, why did we skip verses 10 through 13? Two weeks ago, Resurrection Sunday, the message was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the first nine verses of this chapter. Last week, Pastor Scott began with uh, verse 14 and started talking about Jesus and his casting out a demon from a young boy. We arbitrarily skipped 10 through 13 because it didn't really quite fit onto the end of the, the focus of Resurrection Sunday, and it didn't really lend itself to what was going to be discussed last week. So we realized it does connect to today's message. Now, today's message is on two verses. We'll get to those in a second. But I want us to look back at verses 10 through 13 because there's some pretty significant things that are happening here. I've said this before when I've had an opportunity to preach. If I was teaching this in the classroom down the hallway, we would go into some of the potholes of verses 10 through 13. We would unpack Elijah, who is he, and so forth. But for, for this morning, our purposes, let me just read this, make a couple comments, and I think you'll see how it connects. Verse 10, as they're walking down the mountain, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, asked Jesus, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, just to remind you, they've seen Elijah. He's been on the mount with Jesus, as well as Moses. That probably triggers this, this question. Jesus answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. Let me just stop right there. This is a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that? That was many chapters. Tends to, um, to say that you have heard it said. In other words, the scribes have taught you. But I say to you. He's doing the same thing here. Yes, the scribes did correctly note that Elijah must first come, and in fact, he has come. Verse 12, I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. And then Jesus takes that opportunity to connect it to himself, and he says this, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Well, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And they did. They got that part. They didn't get the part, though, that <laughs> we're going to unpack this morning. They didn't fully grasp what Jesus meant when he said, but did to him whatever they pleased, and that the same thing's going to happen to the Son of Man. John the Baptist had come. John the Baptist had, in fact, restored all things, namely, in pointing their attention to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of everything. He is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. But the fact is that in this restoring role that John the Baptist had, it was not completed without suffering, suffering ultimately leading in his death. And what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing that with himself. He's saying, just as what happened to John, the same thing's going to happen to me. In fact, from the middle of chapter 16 through the beginning of chapter 26, Matthew is going to give us a series of narrations, a series of lessons where Jesus is, is teaching his disciples. Many of them are in private conversations. 
There were a few parables thrown in there as well, but he's teaching them about really important topics that he wants to make sure they get, they understand. Things like faith, humility, discipline, forgiveness, marriage, even divorce, wealth, compassion, leadership, and the list goes on and on and on. But at strategic intervals, Jesus is going to insert these bombshell sort of statements, predictions or foretellings of his suffering, his death, his resurrection. In fact, there are five of them. We saw one a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 16. It was so unsettling that Peter takes him aside and says, you can't say that about yourself, Jesus. And Jesus has to put Peter in his place, if you remember that. There's one here in verse 12. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. There's a very uh, compact statement that we'll look at in just a minute in verses 22 and 23, and then he says it again in chapter 20 and 26. Strategically reminding his disciples of why he came. And in doing so, in the midst of these teaching episodes, he arrests their attention. He, he, He causes them to stop and think seriously and to focus sharply on what it is that that Jesus has come to do, the meaning, the significance of his work as Messiah, as the anointed one. They must never forget the purpose of his mission. It tends to catch them off guard, just as it did Peter. John Calvin, the great uh, reformer, uh, also commentator, wrote this about this passage. The nearer the time of his death, the more often Christ warned his disciples lest that particular sorrow should undermine their faith. In other words, Jesus knew that the greatest trial that his disciples would face that was yet to come during the time of his earthly ministry was in fact going to be at the end of his ministry. It was going to be in his suffering, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And in those those hours and those days that are yet to come, his disciples are they're, they're going to be on the edge of despair, on the edge of disbelief, even though Jesus had been implanting these things in them all along. John Calvin again. The apostles had imagined that the state of Christ's kingdom would be prosperous and delightful, that he would be universally received with the highest praise. They never thought it possible that priests and scribes and other rulers of the church would oppose him. Their expectations of who a Messiah is and what a Messiah is supposed to do continue to thwart their grasp of who Jesus really is and about what he's going to accomplish on their behalf. As I make that statement, it begs the question, well, how about us? Do we do the same thing? Do we want our heroes, our saviors, our deliverers, do we really want them to suffer? Do we want our heroes to die? I didn't use this in the first uh, worship gathering, but I'll use it here. I'll date myself with this. My favorite movie, Braveheart. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm all into that movie when the main character is, is just conquering and just wreaking havoc, right? But what happens at the end? He dies. Do we want a deliverer like that? 
Probably not. But you know the history, after William Wallace died, the history is more things happened for the good of Scotland than ever during the time of his life. That's a, that's a pretty weak comparison, actually, to the truth of God's Word here. But it makes the point, right? We have this same propensity to want to, we kind of cringe when we think about our heroes, our deliverers, suffering even to the point of death. Think about this. Think about Peter, James, and John. So they've been on the mountaintop, Mount Transfiguration. They've seen the glory of Jesus, the curtain pulled back, so to speak. They saw Moses. They saw Elijah. They're coming down the mountain. They're, they're amazed at what they've just experienced. And then they get to witness Jesus casting a demon out of a little boy. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, he announces, I'm going to die. It's like, wait, what? What's going on here? And that's all it took that sets them back into distress, into despair. It's interesting. Both Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel have parallel accounts of this. And in Luke's account, he says this, as the people were astonished and they were marveling at the miracle that Jesus had just performed, casting this demon out of a little boy, He says to them, let these words sink into your ears. I prayed that this morning. That's why I prayed that this morning. Because Jesus said, let these words sink into your ears. Well, what words? These words. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In Mark's account, he says that the disciples did not understand what he meant by this. And in fact, they were afraid to ask him because they didn't understand. Well, let's turn our attention to the actual two verses, the text for this morning's message, and verses 22 and 23. And as we do, let me give you a big idea. It's very simple. It's very direct. This is my big idea for these two verses. Jesus predicts, or you could say prophesies, or you could say foretells, but he predicts again his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. We're going to briefly focus on those three things. Look at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Number one, Jesus predicts his suffering. And he begins with a favorite title, Son of Man. It's his preferred way of referring to himself, particularly when he's talking about his vocation as Messiah. It's used 80 times in the Gospels. I've shared that before from this pulpit. In fact, more than a third of those occurrences happen in the Gospel according to Matthew. It points to his deity. He knew that. His disciples would know that. Even the religious leaders caught on to that. He's quoting a passage out of the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. I won't take the time to read verses 13 and 14, but you can look those up later. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The Son of Man is a title that's given that speaks of the deity of Jesus. So he is declaring himself divine even as he uses that title. What I want you to notice here is that at the core of this prediction of his suffering, he uses a play on words. He says, the Son of Man, and then this term delivered into, will be delivered into or will be handed over to the hands of men. Think of it this way. The one 
who comes to men and who in fact lives for them is about to be taken by them and eliminated from them. Powerful, powerful play on words. In fact, the word that we translate delivered into, which is what the ESV says, unfortunately gets translated betrayed in the King James and other versions. Now I say unfortunately because the word can mean that, and in fact it does later when Judas Iscariot is being referenced. But it's unfortunate that we see it here because that's not the point that Jesus is making. God is the ultimate author of this handing over. In fact, the term is a biblical idiom that points, based on the Old Testament, points more to the action of God than it does to Judas or than it does to the religious leaders. God is the ultimate author of this handing over. And what's really cool about this word is it's a wonderful word of substitution. Implicit in the definition of the term itself, to hand over, to deliver over, is the idea of substitution. That's the essence of the good news of the gospel. Jesus took my place, took your place on that cross. He was delivered over in our place, in our stead on that cross. Yesterday, as I was reviewing my notes, I shared with Debbie, my bride, I said, it's like an Easter egg, and she just gave me this vacant stare. And like, well, some in the audience will understand what I'm saying, right? It's like an Easter egg in a movie. In fact, there are, there are groups of people, cultic, really, who are looking for Easter eggs in movies, right? It's like there's an Easter egg right here in the text that Jesus is giving, this beautiful word of substitution, this delivering over, this handing over. When God hands over Jesus to sinful men, what that means is God intends His Son, Jesus, to be judged with the judgment that those sinful men deserve. Do you see that? It's an amazing transaction. Peter gets it. Peter, in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, says this, this Jesus delivered up, it's the same concept, handed over or delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He goes on to say, yes, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but notice who's doing the delivering. Who's doing the handing over? It's the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Apostle Paul makes it even stronger because he uses the exact same term in Romans chapter 8, a wonderful passage on God's love. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered over or gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Both Peter and Paul have an Old Testament concept in mind. They have Isaiah chapter 53 in mind. That great chapter, we, we invested time in Isaiah 53 on Good Friday. It's, it's the chapter presenting Messiah as the suffering servant. In that chapter, we're, we're, we're told that Messiah, Jesus, will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. We're, we're told that he'll be esteemed stricken. Then the prophet says, smitten by God. 
Yes, he's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. But then verse 6 says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the Lord's will to crush him, verse 10 says, and to put him to grief. Strong words, words of substitution. And then Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says this. Do you remember? The, he's, he's praying. He's on his face. He's crying out to his father. My father, if it be possible, let this, pass, uh, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, and remember what he says? What does he say? Not as I will, but what? But as you will. It's the will of the Father for Jesus to suffer. That's a big concept to get our heads wrapped around. That's a big concept that the disciples stumbled over. But this is what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man is about to be handed over. You could insert by God the Father into the hands of sinful men. Let's look again now at verse 23. The first uh, phrase in verse 23, and they will kill him. So there's, there's much of suffering that leads up to the actual moment of Jesus being hung on that, that cross, that execution cross. Jesus, secondly then, predicts his death. We need to sit with this just for a minute, not long, but just for a minute. We remembered that. We celebrated that, the reality of that on, on Good Friday a little more than two weeks ago. But put yourself into the sandals of these disciples here. The, the death of Jesus on that executioner's cross, it destroyed their worldview. It's like, wait a minute, our, our hopes, the hopes of a, of a messianic temporal kingdom, uh, the expectation that there would be uh, this state of immediate glory that would rain down and they would participate in, in their current present life. If you remember the two disciples that head out of Jerusalem and head to Emmaus and described in Luke chapter 24, Cleopas is named and he says, we had hoped that he would. Huh. Their expectations, their hopes got in the way of them grasping, of them understanding, of them appreciating this prediction that Jesus is making of his death. Now they had received multiple hints of this uh, in prior, and we've seen it in Matthew, in prior chapters. Yet, it's as, when it happens, it's almost as if nothing of those things that Jesus had said had ever really reached their ears. And what this, what this reveals is a, the, the power of a preconceived idea, the power of a faulty expectations. And again, I think we fall prey to the same thing today. We have expectations of who our Savior should be, what He should look like, how He should act, right? And many of those we've garnered over the years of being in worship services. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, he writes, He humbled Himself, that is Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ponder that. Do we realize the magnitude of the humiliation of Jesus? Do we grasp, really grasp, how far God has gone to redeem us, to buy us back, 
out of sin and to himself? More importantly, do we see God's hand in this? That's what I want you to see. That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to see. This is not some sort of tragic anti-hero accident that happens here. This is the very design of God. From before the foundation of the world, it's the plan of God. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to learn. And this is what he wants us to learn as well. So Jesus predicts his suffering. Jesus predicts his death. And then finally, in verse 23, is the second phrase, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus predicts his resurrection. Thankfully, praise God for that plan. As he often does, Jesus states this within a passive framework. He's He doesn't talk about raising himself, he talks about being raised. And we know that that's a work of the Father, and in fact, Paul says in Romans 1, it's a work of the Spirit. So the whole triune God is involved here. Jesus is is raised, he he is promising here. This, This expression highlights, again, the work of God. The disciples are beginning to absorb this announcement of his suffering and even his death. But for his resurrection, they don't have a reference point. Now, you might think, well, they should have, right? They saw him raise Lazarus, true. But in terms of Jesus being raised himself, they just, that's not happened before to a deliverer, to a savior. And so they're having a hard time understanding that. In fact, both Mark and Luke, in their accounts of this incident, they both say that the disciples did not understand, and so much so that they were afraid to ask. Matthew reveals a little bit more here. Notice what he says, the very last sentence of verse 23, and they were greatly distressed. Literally, they were filled with grief. They were grieving exceedingly. Jesus' disciples never quite seemed to hear the the joy of this prediction of his resurrection. And we're not told why. We don't know exactly why, but I, I wonder if it has something to do with, unless you have experienced this, how do you understand it? And they're on the other side of history. They're on the other side of the crucifixion, let alone the resurrection but we're not. We're on this side of that. They have not yet experienced it, but we have. And if we don't embrace the power of Jesus' resurrection, if we don't embrace that power daily, then guess what? Our emotions are going to be the same. When we come up against issues, challenges, problems in our lives, in our families, in our work situation, whatever the case might be, if we don't embrace the power of the resurrection of Jesus, then we're going to be greatly distressed as well. It's interesting that after Jesus is resurrected, Mark records for us that he appears to them. He appears to the 11. Judas is is gone. He appears to the 11, and he rebukes them. That's a strong term. But he rebukes them, Mark says, for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had been risen. Fortunately, after Jesus ascends to heaven and then the Holy Spirit 10 days later comes at Pentecost, these 
these truths, the truths of the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, they become the core of the disciples' faith. They become the core of what they write about, what they speak about, what they preach about. They become the focal point of their letters. In fact, it becomes, it becomes the core of Christianity as a whole. In fact, how Christ suffered left an indelible mark on Peter. He's frequently writing about it in his epistles, in his sermons. He's preaching about it, about the sufferings of Christ. He says, I have been a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I've been a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. The Apostle Paul, too. The Apostle Paul repeatedly states the reason why he is being persecuted. Toward the end of Acts, beginning in chapter 23, again in 24, 26, 28, the Apostle Paul, he's speaking before various groups of people, sometimes individuals, sometimes groups, and he says, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. It's not so much the teachings of Jesus that I'm on trial for. I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and I have embraced the power of that resurrection. That's what led these disciples, these followers of Jesus, to their deaths. That's what led them to martyrdom, to be able to hold fast. What we sang about this morning, Jesus holding them fast because they believed in the power of the resurrection. Well, it's one thing for, to remind us that Jesus predicts his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, but it's quite another to fully embrace that. And so in retrospect, as we look back, I ask the question, where do you stand today? Where do you stand in relationship to the sufferings of Jesus, to his sacrificial death for your sins, and to the power of the resurrection? Have you embraced those truths? Are you living daily in the power of his resurrected life? Look, this is not mere mental assent to some wonderful truth about Jesus. That's not what it is. Nor is it just a, pro a proclamation. I'm sitting here, I'm proclaiming these truths. That's not what this is about. This is about embracing the reality of these truths, believing in them, trusting them, and then committing our lives to him, to the truth of who Jesus is, and to the reality of what he has accomplished on our behalf. One of my closest personal friends uh, went home to be with Jesus two weeks ago, just two days after Resurrection Sunday. Four days after he texted me and was just relishing the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus. My buddy, uh, my buddy Mark lived in Littleton, Colorado, and he, for the last 13 months, he battled a, a rare form of cancer, and he battled valiantly. He finished well. He knew his death was imminent. He literally was uh, kind of disappearing before our very eyes. Um, he, he studied God's word up until the very end. Mark uh, was part of a, uh, and a faithful member of an online Zoom-based Bible study that I lead on Monday nights. And you could see it in his, in his gauntness, but you could hear in his voice the the reality of Jesus' sacrifice and his death for him. He finished well. 
Well, two days after Resurrection Sunday, that Tuesday evening, on the last evening of his life here on earth, surrounded by family in his hospital room there in Littleton, Colorado, one of his sons asked him, Dad, what are you most looking forward to in heaven? And Mark immediately said, the judgment seat. It's like, really? (laughs) Is that what you would be looking forward to? I'm not sure, right? But it was for Mark. He went on to say he wanted to throw himself down in front of God and say, I'm not worthy. But Jesus died for me. And then feel the total forgiveness and grace and love of God sweep over him. When I asked his wife, Lisa, for permission to share this, she quickly agreed. She said, gosh, Mark, Mark would love it if it would encourage someone. And then she reminded me that since Mark was raised as a Roman Catholic, he had struggled with the idea of God's grace and the power of his forgiveness and, and what comes with, with that grace. He, he accepted grace, right? He accepted it. He understood grace in his mind. But to truly fathom it? I mean, can we? My friend's sweetest desire was to hear that he was forgiven and to hear it in God's voice and to be loved in spite of his sin. I urge you today, acknowledge who Jesus is. Acknowledge him in all aspects of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Turn. Turn from your indifference. Maybe turn from your preconceived ideas or expectations and accept that forgiveness. Accept his forgiveness. And then once you've done that, then submit to him. Submit to his his authority over your life. Submit to his plans for your life. Obey his words. And then bring others to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these two verses. So short, so succinct, Lord Jesus, yet so powerful. You were so careful, intentional, and really gentle in repeatedly reminding your disciples that you were going to suffer for them, you were going to die for them, and you would be resurrected for them. Lord, I'm personally grateful for my brother Mark. He's face-to-face with you. What What a glorious reality that is. But Father, for myself and for my friends in this room, we desire to fully embrace the reality of your suffering, your death, and your resurrection. By the power of your Spirit, would you take these truths and drive them deeply into our hearts so that you might bring about the necessary life change as a result of following you. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior, our Lord, our King, Jesus. Amen.